0: We are continuing our journey through the 13 principles of faith. We have completed 10 of the principles, and now we are getting to the really spicy and meaty part of the 13 principles, and we're going to begin today with principle number 11, and that is the idea of reward and punishment, and 11, 12, and 13 all deal with reward and punishment in general. We have principle number 11, which is reward and punishment. Principle number 12 is Messiah, which is reward and punishment in this world and kind of national reward and punishment. And then we have principle number 13, which is the resurrection, which is kind of the the portal, shall we say, to the ultimate reward and punishment. But this is the part of the 13 principles that are dealing with the big questions of Reward, punishment, eschatology, what happens to the soul, uh, what happens after you die, Olam Abba, the afterlife, gehenom how exactly does God dispense reward and punishment, really fascinating stuff. So let's begin. Today's going to be more like an introduction to the subject in general. There's so much to discuss. I want to do it kind of systematically, uh, methodically to start from the most basic – Ideas and to substantiate them and kind of to build t- upon that foundation and to go to the more advanced and esoteric subjects once we understand and establish the basics. So let's begin and let's read through the Ramam's actual words. Principle number 11, that is that the Almighty, blessed as he, gives reward to those who do the mitzvahs of the Torah. And punishes those who transgress its prohibitions. That's the basic idea: reward and punishment for adherence to God and for transgressing the Word of God, disobedience to God. Okay. And part of this principle is that the great reward is in Olam Okay, which means the next world or the afterlife. We'll talk more about that at great length still. And the worst punishment is called karis, which means to be cut off. There are many myths in the Torah that says a person gets cut off from his people, cut off from the land, cut off from the soul, from the afterlife. We'll talk more about that, of course, at great length as well. And the Rambam, when he when he speaks about this, he speaks about this in you know very succinctly. He says, We already spoke about this a lot. In the treatise on reward and punishment, so a little background over here, the Rambam writes the 13 principles of faith as an introduction to the 10th chapter of the Mishnah in Sanhedrin. But he begins, he starts off with a very long treatise, a very long essay on reward and punishment. And therefore, when he talks about the the 11th principle, he just says, we really spoke a lot about it in the introduction. So it starts off with the treatise and then it goes through the 13 principles. So he's kind of relying on what he wrote there earlier. I hope to actually go through this treatise because it is absolutely fascinating. And then he sources it from a verse. The verse that refers to this idea is from Exodus chapter 32 where Moshe tells God, this is in the aftermath of the golden calf fiasco, Moshe tells God, if you're not going to forgive the Jewish people, then erase me from your book. And God says, no, the people who sinned, those are the ones that I'm going to erase from the book. And that seems to imply that the people who are guilty, they're going to be punished and people who are not guilty, well, then they're not going to be punished. They are going to be rewarded. Okay, that's the text of the Rambam in this principle. Now, everyone, all the commentaries on the Rambam point out That this is related to the previous principle. The previous principle is that God knows and God cares about our behavior. And he acts and he treats us based upon our choices. Our choices determine how he treats us. And therefore, once we know that, we have the principle of reward and punishment, like an outgrowth of the idea that the Almighty knows everything and everything matters – he knows and he cares, and therefore he treats us differently depending upon our behavior. Now, this is a huge and complex and multifaceted subject, a very fascinating one as well, and we're going to try to approach it in a, in a logical sequence. We're going to start off with the general subject of reward and punishment. What is divine reward and punishment? How is it dispensed? Where is it dispensed? What is the nature of of divine reward and punishment and how does that differ from from human reward and punishment. And then as we advance in the subject, we're going to talk about some of the venues of reward and punishment and what we know about them. So we're going to talk about the afterlife, what happens after you die. We're talking about Gehenna and, and paradise, Olam Abba, Gan Eden. We're going to dip our toe, hopefully, into the salacious, Subject of reincarnation. We're going to talk about kares, What does it mean to be disenfranchised from the Jewish people? The different types of kares, And I hope, again, as I mentioned earlier, to read the amazing treatise of the Rambam on reward and punishment. I really want to cover this subject comprehensively and thoroughly, but I want to start off with a disclaimer. We are about to embark on a very scary subject. This is a subject that is apt to cause a lot of dissonance. Psychologists tell us that the greatest motivation is fear. When you're scared, when you're fearful, you are prone to act more than any other influence. Potentially, there's one influence that's even more powerful than fear, and that is inertia. Just maintaining the way you are right now we're going to be discussing the immense reward for listening to God and the frightening punishment of disobeying God. It's quite likely that we're going to be plunged right between these two most powerful forces pushing in opposite directions. On the one hand, you're going to have inertia. The change is nightmarishly hard. It's difficult to change. difficult to change your values and your behavior. You know, a lot of us are addicted to our devices. It's very hard to not use your devices for 25 hours on Shabbos. Oh, my favorite football team plays on Shabbos. How can I miss the game? Or I live in a city with very few kosher options. What do you want me to do? What am I supposed to eat? Davening three times a day, praying three times a day. It's so inconvenient to change is really hard. The status quo that we have is very fixed and it's really hard to dislodge. That's one force. On the other hand, we're going to have the incredible motivation of reward and punishment. We're going to discover reward and punishment on a scale that we've never seen before. And all of us are going to crave to have a piece of this reward and on the other side, we're going we're gonna to dread We're going to have the terror of facing this punishment. And this is all incredibly motivational. And our explanation of the subject is in a place that's right between these two forces, the unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. And this is going to prompt us, most likely, into all sorts of justifications and rationalizations. Whenever you're facing such a dilemma – The instinct is to try to rationalize your current standard and say, well, I'm good enough. I'm righteous enough. God understands it's not so bad. This is, this is the kind of trajectory that we're all going to be placed upon. And this is what I want to warn you about before we get here. Now it's important to remember there are no divine dispensations. This is a subject, this is a concept we'll see a lot. There is no immunity. God does not overlook anything. You need to be the most righteous person in the world. Any iniquity, any deviation from doing what's right registers. God notices it and it goes on your ledger. The sources are emphatic about this point. Nothing is ignored. Everything, both good and bad, is accounted for. The Talmud tells us that anyone says otherwise is endangering his life. Whoever says I Vatran, whoever said the Almighty, well, he ignores. It's okay. He's not gonna punish you. You're you're fine, you're good enough. Whoever says that, says the Talmud in the book of Bavarkama, page fifty, A someone like that is endangering their life. And I'm going to be very careful to try and give you all the sources so you know I'm not making this up. So we're going to have this dissonance and the Talmud tells us that all those justifications and rationalizations are false. Now, by the way, I really like to point this out, that at every stage in the spectrum of righteousness, this dissonance exists. One of my favorite themes is to tell the people that are very religious and very righteous and very observant, I tell them, you guys are exactly like everyone else. Why? Because you know what the Talmud says about someone who speaks Lashon Hara? How can you speak Lashon Hara? You're violating the will of God. I say, well, you know, they, well, they find a way to rationalize. You know what the Talmud says about someone who wastes time and neglects Torah study? the the harshness that we find in the literature about that, it's it's terrifying. So how could you say you're any better than anyone else? Yes, you may be religious, observant, fastidiously observant to everything, but you're no better than everyone else. You also have your rationalizations and justifications. Everyone that has this dissonance is an expert at trying to sneak out of the pain that it engenders. So the first thing I want to do before we get into the subject is to be aware of what's likely to happen once we dig into the subject in a fundamental way. And if you find yourself resisting what we're going to learn, you are now aware of what is actually happening within you, number one. Number two, I want to encourage you to resist the easy solution of trying to justify and rationalize everything. Because one of the worst things in the world is when someone twists the Torah to conform to their existing self, thus sparing themselves the pain of dissonance. You're good the way you are. There's no need to examine your behavior. Someone who does that, again, our our sages tell us that this is like the worst thing. We actually read in Perki Avos chapter 3, Someone who who makes a decision or or reveals a facet of Torah that's against the halacha, even though they have Torah and good deeds, ain lo They have no portion in the afterlife. Which is shorthand for what do say say? It means that they're they're cut off. They're done. They earn no reward in the afterlife, even though they have Torah and they have good deeds. But this, this practice of trying to twist and contort Torah, and to shoehorn it into your into your current existing reality, and say, "Well, you're okay. You're good enough. You don't need to improve." That is something that we're very compelled to do, but it's something that we're told in the sources that kicks us out of any place in the afterlife. I liken this to a physician. Suppose you're a physician and the patient has a terminal diagnosis or has a life-threatening diagnosis but you don't want to upset them. You don't want to make them sad. So you tell them everything's fine. No, you don't tell them everything's fine. You tell them this is something very dangerous. This is something that's life-threatening. You have to do this and this and this and this to improve it. It's not helpful. To appease someone by saying them, you're okay, when we're going to learn that the Torah takes, the Almighty takes the laws of the Torah very seriously. Someone who is a physician that withholds critical information from their, from their patients, well, that's, that's gross malpractice. They should lose their license. I think someone who says, quote, Judaism does not believe in the afterlife, someone who says that is a practitioner of this kind of deception. In order to avoid the dissonance of someone violating the will of God, they are going to omit massive portions of our philosophy to the detriment of everyone involved. So we're not going to misinterpret Torah to avoid the pain of dissonance. The way to try to address our flaws is not by twisting Torah to conform to it, and therefore we're going to make a big effort to try to substantiate everything we say. You know I'm not going to make this up. I'll give you the sources, chapter and verse. So let's begin. And then we're going to start with the generalities, and then we're going to proceed to the specifics. So the general principle of reward and punishment is found in many, many, many places. So, for example, in Parsha's Bechukosai, in Leviticus, the verse says, if you follow my laws, and if you observe the mitzvot, and if you study Torah, and if you do what I ask of you, then it proceeds to say, well, you will be rewarded. And if you do not, if you violate the Torah, if you neglect the mitzvot, If you disobey me, I will do bad things to you. I will punish you. Again, the same binary layout of reward and punishment. If you do good, you will get good. You will get reward. If you do bad, you will get bad. You will get punishment. Similarly, in Parashas Tisavo, chapter 28 of Devarim, this is the portion of the Torah called the Admonishment, the Tochacha. It starts off by saying... If you listen, if you adhere to the voice of Hashem your God, and you observe and you fulfill the mitzvah, the mitzvah of God, the commandments of God, that commanded today, and then it says, all kinds of blessings will come upon you. A dozen or so verses of amazing blessings. And then it does the flip side. And if you do not listen to God and you do not adhere to the mitzvah, etc., and then it goes on. With many, many, many dozens of verses of curses and all kinds of terrible things that will befall you if you disobey God. Another example, the middle paragraph of the Shema, it's all about reward and punishment. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. So the big idea here of, of this Rambam is definitely substantial in the sources. God is not apathetic to our behavior. The good deeds that we do engender reward and the bad deeds that we do beget punishment. This is undisputed in the sources. There is no source that contests it. It is universally accepted. Now, there's an interesting thread in the literature. This you may find a little bit surprising. There is a thread that tells us that we should avoid using reward and punishment as a motivator. So even though the mitzvos get reward or beget reward, and the sins, the transgressions, they result in punishment, nevertheless, there is, again, the sources tell us, that we shouldn't do the mitzvos in order to get the reward, and we shouldn't avoid the sins in order to avoid the punishment. Ultimately, what we should try to do is to fulfill the will of God just because he told us. So, for example, the third Mishnah of Antignos, man of Soko, says, don't be like servants who, who serve the master on condition of receiving reward. Rather, you should be like servants who serve the master without thinking about the reward, not on condition to get the reward. Now, this is a very difficult idea to swallow. You know, mitzvahs are hard, Torah study is difficult, and if you focus on the reward, oh, we'll learn about the tremendous reward they got for Torah and mitzos. Well, then it sweetens the deal. Yet we are urged to not worship God with the intention of getting reward. We should do it for altruistic reasons. So this is an important idea just to understand before we get into it, that on an ideal level, we should develop such a relation with the Almighty that we shouldn't be thinking about the reward at all. Our focus should be, I just want to do the will of God and any reward that comes on the side is just like a side benefit, but it's not really the motivation. Now, Rambam dedicates the 10th chapter of the laws of repentance to this question of what ought to be the motivation behind our mitzvot. But nevertheless, he makes it clear that even though ideally, ideally, we should do the mitzvos because of altruistic reasons, nevertheless, you have to start off by doing it for ulterior reasons. Mitoch Shelolishma Balishma. Through doing it for reward and punishment, ultimately that will develop the relationship, and you will eventually be able to do it. Because of altruistic reasons. So again, we're talking about reward and we're going to get really into the subject at great length and detail. We're talking about the great reward for mitzvos and the opposite for sins. But it's also important to present this as an introduction that ideally the motivation should be altruistic. But again, we're simpletons and therefore we should focus on the reward. And we should focus on the punishment because that is where everyone has to start off with. And most of us, well, you know, we're, we're still beginner. You guys are not, but I'm a beginner. But again, even, even on a theoretical level, it's important for us to know what the reward and punishment is. So again, we have the general concept of reward and punishment undisputed. And we have this idea, important to remember, that at least on a, a theoretical level, on an ideal level – The motivation behind mitzvos should be just altruistic. You're doing the truth because it's true. And you know what? If you get the benefit on the side, that's great. But that is not where we need to start. We need to start by indeed being motivated by the reward and being fearful of the punishment. Now, here's where we start getting into the meat of the issue, into the heart of the matter. Where is this reward for mitzvos dispensed? And where is the punishment for transgressions dispensed? So for the most part, the reward for mitzvahs is not in this world. Instead, the reward, for the most part, is in the afterlife. And again, there are some ignorant or maleficent people who say that Judaism doesn't believe in the afterlife. It's total nonsense. It's rubbish. It's malarkey. And again, we're going to establish our position with citations and sources. And the first source is the Americans' favorite verse in Scripture. Now, what is the Americans' favorite verse in Scripture? It's the Book of Devarim 7.11, chapter 7, verse 11, Americans' favorite verse. The verse says, you should observe the mitzvah and the statutes and the laws that I command you today to do them. Hayom Lasosam Today to do them. Set the Talmud in several places. One of them is the book of Avodah Zarah, page 3a. Amar What does it mean that I command you today to do them? Today you do them you don't do them tomorrow. Tomorrow it's too late. Today you do them, but today you don't get reward for doing them. So again, the verse says we do the mitzvot today. That teaches us two lessons, says the Talmud. You could do the mitzvot today, tomorrow, once you're dead, once you moved on from this world, it's too late to do the mitzvot, number one. Number two, today you do them. In this world, it's the world of action, of doing the mitzvos, but not reward for the mitzvos. Continues the Talmud. If someone toils before Shabbos, they have what to eat on Shabbos. Someone who does not toil before Shabbos, from what can they eat on Shabbos? So the Talmud compares doing the mitzvos in this world and receiving the word for those mitzvos in Olam Abba to someone preparing for Shabbos. Before Shabbos, you could do all the work. You could cook. You could bake. You could knead, etc., etc. And that is a preparation for Shabbos when you can no longer cook and you can no longer prepare and bake and knead, etc. Similarly, this world—that's when you do the mitzvos, but you don't get the reward. You don't consume the reward of those mitzvos. Whereas in Olam Abba, in the next world, on Shabbos tomorrow, then you consume, even though you can no longer. Create, you can no longer cook, so to speak. You can no longer do any mitzvahs. So the breakdown, again, of deeds are here and reward is there, is in the afterlife. And by the way, you will notice from this, this is already getting a little sneak peek into future sessions here about this subject. You will notice that the Talmud compares the doing of the mitzvah to the preparing of the food that will be consumed on Shabbos. When you do a mitzvah, you are creating a spiritual reality that is something that cannot be appreciated in this world. It can only be unlocked. That token, so to speak, can only be appreciated in the spiritual world. Doing a mitzvah is fulfilling the will of, the will of God, but it's the creation of a spiritual reality that has no value in this world under most circumstances. And it can only be appreciated, it can only be enjoyed, it can only be partaken in, in the spiritual world, where those realities, so to speak, are manifested. And I think I will talk more about this in a bit. Now the Talmud tells us, in the book of Kidushin, page 39b, again it repeats this theme, reward is only in Olam Abba. schar mitzvah, the reward for a mitzvah, Baha'i Alma Lekha, in this world It doesn't exist. And it tells us the following. There's a b'risa, a teaching. There is no mitzvah that's written in the Torah that the reward for it does not depend upon resurrection. Meaning that the only way to get the reward is in the afterlife after the resurrection. And it tells us, in the midst of honoring your father and mother, it says, so you should have long days. And you should have goodness. And in the midst of sending away the mother bird and taking the eggs or the chicks, the verse says, it will be good for you. And you will live long days. So in two mitzvahs, mitzvah of honoring your parents and the mitzvah of sending away the mother, the mother bird, it says, the reward for those mitzvahs are goodness. You will have goodness towards you. And you will have long days. But there was once a man who climbed up a tree based upon the instruction of his father to get, to send away the mother bird and to get the chicklets. And then he fell off the tree and died. So this person was fulfilling both mitzvahs that told us that if you do those mitzvahs, you will get reward of long years and goodness. And he died. He fell off the tree. How do you explain it? Says the Talmud. When it says that it will be good for you, it means it will be the ultimate good for you. in And you will have long days. That is referring to the world of eternity the world of truly long days. So again, the Talmud tells us, again, this principle, that the reward for mitzvot is not in this world, rather it is in the world that is truly good, in Olam and it is in the reward that is truly long, the world that is the eternal world in Olam Now, an important point, uh, what about Gentiles? Can they earn admittance to Olam so the Rambam tells us in the laws of kings and wars, Malachom umachomoseim, all the way at the end of his fourteen books, chapter eight, law number eleven. Whoever accepts upon themselves the seven Noahide laws and is very fastidious to do them properly, hare zeh mechaside Um sa'olam. This person is of the pious ones of the nations. And they have a portion in Olmaba, provided, provided sheikablo son son that they will accept it and do it. Because they might have commanded them to do it in the Torah, and it was informed to us through Moshe that the Noahites are responsible. Meaning, if a person, a non-Jew, a Gentile. They do the mitzvahs because that is what the will of God is, as conveyed in the Torah. Then they get a portion in Olm Then they are rendered the chassidei umas Olam, the righteous ones of the nations. But if they do it because it's the right thing to do and it makes sense to them logically, they are not considered a and they are not considered the pious ones of the nations. And implied from this is also that they do not receive a portion in the world to come. So to answer the question, do Gentiles get Omaba? The answer is it depends. If they are righteous and pious, and that means that they accept the seven Noahide laws and fulfill them completely, but they do that because the Torah says for them to do that, and the Torah is legit as give my God to Moshe, then they indeed qualify. I always like to say that the nations are really lucky that we're right. You know, because if the Christians are right, then a billion and a half Muslims are out of luck. They get no afterlife. And if the Muslims are right, then a billion and a half Christians are out of luck. They also get no afterlife. But lucky for both of them that neither of them are right. The Torah has not been replaced, and therefore there is hope for the Gentiles to earn the afterlife. So again, if we had to just conclude what we have until this point, we have the general principle of reward and punishment, and we have this idea, this disclaimer, that on an ideal level, we should do the mitzvos because that's what God wants. And we love God and we want to do what he wants. And we're not thinking about the reward, but that's a very advanced level for the really righteous people. The Ram tells us that's a level of Abraham. That's probably beyond most of us, certainly beyond me. And the venue of the reward we're told is in Omaba. Today we do the mitzvos. Before Shabbos, we prepare for Shabbos, and then we consume what we worked upon in Olam Abba, and then we have this other idea that Gentiles qualify, provided that they believe in the divinity of the Torah, and they adhere to the seven Noahide laws as commanded by God through Moshe. Okay, so that's the general idea. I want to get into some of the specifics. The Ramam tells us that... Even though the principal reward for mitzvos is an omaba, nevertheless, there are fringe benefits that the Almighty gives to people here who observe the mitzvos. So there is reward, but not ultimate reward. Instead, it's facilitatory reward that's given to those who observe God in this world. I want to go through this piece. This is again for the Laws of Repentance, chapter nine. The Rambam asks a question. Wait a minute. The law state, the Talmud says, the Rambam himself says, that the reward, the ultimate reward, is for all In the world that's entirely good, in the world that's entirely long, the days that are long, the eternal world, if that's the venue of reward... Why does the Torah tell us that the reward that we will get for mitzvot is we'll have lots of rain in the proper time and we'll have stability and security and prosperity and there won't be any miscarriages, not by us, and not by our animals. It seems like the Torah tells us that there's going to be reward in this world. We'll have all the all the benefits of a good life on terra firma. All those things that the Torah promises are in this world. Like satiation and stability and peace. And we won't be banished from our land. The tells us like this. That's all true. It's true that if someone does the mitzvot, they will be rewarded here. When we do the mitzvot of God, we will have all the benefits in this world. And when we violate the mitzvot of God, we will have all the punishments in this world. Nevertheless, all those goodnesses are not sof matan It's not the end goal of the reward of mitzvot. And all those punishments are not the end punishment that is extracted from those who violate the mitzvot. Rather, this is how it is. The Almighty gives us the Torah, which is the tree of life. And anyone who does it, who does everything that's written inside of it, merits through it the life of Olam And to the degree of their righteousness is the degree of reward. Very important. Olam is not just a binary. Are you in? Are you a citizen of Olam or not? The level of someone's righteousness in this world will determine their level in Olam in the afterlife, for all eternity. Nevertheless, the Torah promised us that if we do the mitzvos with joy and with delight and with energy and enthusiasm, then the Almighty will remove all obstacles from us doing the mitzvos. So we won't get sick, and we won't be distracted by war, and there won't be any hunger or famine. All the bad things that could disrupt your life and make it more difficult for you to do mitzvos, all those things will be cleared away all the obstacles, all the hindrances will be removed and you will be able to do what you want to do. And it will bestow upon us goodness and will give us uh, the the prosperity and the health and everything will be availed to us in order to enable us to do the mitzvah. So the Ram continues. It's a very long piece. But the general idea is that there is reward, which is the essential reward, the actual reward. That's all I'm about. And then there is the facilitatory reward, all the reward that's just to facilitate, to enable us to do mitzvot, And that indeed is here, but that will not, that's not the actual payment of the reward. That is just there to enable, to facilitate our fulfillment of the mitzvot. It's like a side benefit. I think of it as like a, like a token gift. You know, when you get a mug, an emblazoned mug, you know, from, uh, or, or, merch. Yeah. Like some, a t-shirt. That, that's not like, that's not attachable thing. That's just like a token gift. So it doesn't count. It's not an actual thing, uh, that, that registers. It's just like one of those things that it's, it's there to facilitate something else. It's not, it's not an actual payment, so to speak. You know, like a, like a tote bag or a coffee cup or stickers, something to put on the back of your laptop, a bumper sticker. Those things are not, they're just a token gift. The money has the ultimate reward and that is in the afterlife. But in this world, we get token gifts, and that is that they might will facilitate for us the tremendous uh, freedom to be able to engage in mitzvot. That's the general introduction to the subject. We still have so much to cover. So for example, we have to talk about the differences between how God dispenses reward and punishment versus how it's done by us or how we understand it. There are many, many differences between how God dispenses reward and punishment versus how we do it. Uh, also, the nature of Om Abba. What is the nature of Om Abba? What's the nature of the world to come? And what's the nature of the reward? And what's the nature of the punishment in the world to come? These are vast subjects that we need to cover. So today we've kind of just dipped our toe into the subject very briefly. We've learned about the general subject of reward and punishment, that is how the Almighty operates in the world. Again, we're told to not focus, or at least on an ideal level, we should not focus exclusively on that. We should ideally be motivated by altruistic motivations on an ideal level, but most of us are not holding at that level. Reward, in the most basic sense, is in omaba in this world, we have facilitatory reward, and that's that's great, but there is so much more nuance that we need to cover. It turns out, and we'll see this next time, that a wicked person is also rewarded for every mistake that they do, but their reward is actually fundamentally different than a righteous person's reward. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about why, for example, Olam Abba is not described in great detail in Scripture. It's a very... Difficult problem because the Torah does hint at Olam in many different places, but it doesn't spell it out clearly like it does the reward in this world. That's a question that everyone asks. We're going to have to ponder it. But again, Olamaba is an enormous subject and we're going to try to understand it as best we can. But this is the introduction. We're, we're, we're finally there. We're getting closer towards the end, and we're getting to the real spicy parts, reward and punishment, and everything that comes along with it. I'm excited to go through this with y'all. Today was just like the the bare bones introduction, and next time we're going to get into the subject a bit deeper, and I'm really looking forward to that. As always, my email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com.